you are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Is eating disorder treatment different if you're a man? That's the question that we're looking at today. I'm speaking to research psychiatrist Philippa Hay, and she's in Sydney, and um, has recently published a paper. Oh, it's kind of like the first part of the paper, from what I can gather, that's going to look into um, literature, personal stories, and accounts um, for that men with eating disorders have either published or talked about or been through. And so... That's what we're going to be talking about. We're just talking about the first phase of um, the research today, which was looking at eating disorder biographies, as written by men, and seeing what they can tell us. I'm going to admit, this research, this conversation went a bit, a bit different than I thought it would be. Um, I'm not sure that I was what I was expecting, but um, much more focused on therapy as treatment than, than anything else, and seemed to not really look at nutritional rehabilitation at all as, as treatment, which really surprised me. But anyway, I'll let you listen yourself. Here's the podcast. Hope you enjoy. So I'm a um, academic psychiatrist. I work in both um, as a clinician, but also as a researcher and teacher. And um, the research that we were talking about today is part of a sort of broader um, research program that we've had at Western Sydney, where we've been looking at um, the gap between um, people in treatment for eating disorders and people in the community who have eating disorders. And initially, um, the first phase, we were looking very much um, at women because the perception was and is true that the majority of people with eating disorders are women. But then we realised we were leaving out an important group of people with eating disorders are men. And some of our other research indicated that men now a, what we call a large minority of people with eating disorders. And the gap in terms of treatment for men seems to be larger, at least as large, if not larger, than that for women. That is, fewer men um, with eating disorders appear to be in treatment or to be accessing treatments. This research was really to try and work out, if we can understand better, what are the barriers, what are the reasons men may not be accessing treatment, and um, to get a to explore that um, with men who have had treatment with eating disorders, the first phase of this research was looking at what is written of literature or books that have been written for autobiographies of men who have had an eating disorder and have written about that eating disorder. When you went into looking at these these papers, what were you sort of hoping to find just the general sort of idea of the experience what we were hoping or expecting to find was particularly was being a man a barrier in any way or did it influence their treatment experience in any way um, but also what we did find um, in addition to that was a number of general themes that probably are not just particular to men and have been um, written about by women and reported by women who have been asked about treatment experiences. And fundamentally, the sort of treatment therapy relationship and the uh, relationship with the therapists and with doctors is something that's really, um, really, really important to people. And another thing that was also very important that, again, is probably not only with men, it's definitely um, true for women's eating disorder, was having a respectful collaborative 
approach in terms of treatment and competency in the therapist. So again, we've found that with women, um, that having a therapist who knows about eating disorders and is confident and competent in treating eating disorders, which is not universal at all, um, and um, that is very much very important for people with eating disorders when they're seeking treatment. So, um, and it was not consistent, really, whether the gender of the therapist is important or the gender of the sort of milieu that, where people are treated can be important. It can be um, uncomfortable. I think some of the men talked about being the only man in a group of women. You know, that can be uncomfortable. You can feel that you don't don't really fit in or yeah, that strikes me as a, a slightly sort of um, almost gendered question, because I imagine that 50 years ago, when most therapists and most doctors were men, or, you know, many years ago, that would anybody have asked the question, well, was it, does it affect the women that they don't have a female doctor? Yeah, we do know that um, very often women do prefer a female doctor. Yeah, but many, most of them commented that um, for example, um, there was one quote, some of the staff had a problem with the male in the group. That was where the actual staff had a problem. Feminist therapists or therapists have a very feminine view of eating disorders as being a, a woman's problem and to do with um, women's experiences can find that challenging. So it can sort of happen the other way. That sounds, that sounds like a real problem if, if these, there's still therapists out there that think that eating disorders are a woman's problem. Yeah. Yikes. Can you tell me, did anybody actually recover without a therapist? Yes, yeah, there was um, one male in particular did not recover with formal therapy. Yes, that does happen. Um, certainly read accounts of autobiographies of women who have recovered without formal therapy or have found or have had formal therapy and not found it helpful and then recovered um, while they weren't in formal therapy. And what surprised you most about your findings? How, how much they had in common with women in terms of treatment experiences, things that were helpful and things that were unhelpful. I think, um, we, I think we were expecting to perhaps find some more things that were um, particularly related to men and also particularly um, maybe finding that the men felt didn't feel comfortable in a setting where there were a lot of women. Um, but in fact, it was sometimes it was more, as I said, the fact that the therapists were uncomfortable with that, not the men themselves. Mm. Mm -hmm. And what are the next stages of this research? Uh, and the other part of the research is looking more at the um, at some studies we've done of quantitative studies, what we call sort of big, large community-based studies of the general population in Australia. But they're just uh, looking at issues around men in the general community who um, do and don't or have sought help for um, a mental health problem. Again, there's a lot of commonalities with women, but men were less likely, significantly likely to be in treatment um, than women uh, who have an eating disorder. But when we did a what we call a sort of controlling for other factors, such as how severe the illness was perceived and how um, how unwell they were in other ways, the differences in gender disappeared. So although gender is important, it's not as important as perceiving yourself to have a problem and a need for treatment and also the severity of that problem. Did you look at all into 
the more bi- biological aspects of the illness and nutritional rehabilitation. You know, do the people that recover actually do so because they got nutritionally rehabilitated sooner and that sort of thing, you know, away from the um, therapy side of things and actually looking at the biology and yeah, the nutrition? Um, not so much, no. That wasn't something that, that emerged a lot. It seemed to be that when people reached a sort of what we call a tipping point or a turning point, um, when they decided that they really wanted to change and and recover, then they would address nutrition. Many of us that sort of believe that the energy deficit needs to be amended before therapy can even necessarily be helpful. So I'm, you know, I'm interested in seeing, um, you know, and I think that those people who recover without therapy are usually people who who are able to nutritionally rehabilitate themselves, whether they feel like it or not, or whether they reach that that tipping point or not. I think the ethos is that you don't start intensive psychological therapy for people with anorexia nervosa who are staff, but you still they still need therapy. They still need support and counselling and um, nurturing through that process of nutritional rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. But that, that can come in many forms that aren't necessarily therapy, though. Yeah, that aren't necessarily formal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as I say, can often come in forms of life change or new partners or joining something that. I think I think that that's also for many people. It can um, just be realizing that they got to a state of have to change because um, I think that 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 can then can seem to people like oh they have to wait for the right moment in order to actually start eating more food and recovering and. Yeah, I suppose it's it's because in the past we've often treated people compulsory under compulsion, forced food and forced refeeding um, when people weren't quite ready and weren't really accepting of that. And that isn't very successful. Well, I think arguably it's only not successful because it's not done long enough. Somebody might be in, in treatment for six, uh, eight weeks and they can put on weight, but the you know it's still not enough to actually get them in a place mentally because um, I think that it's it's also being shown that people that, that then continue to be refed and supported through refeeding for that longer period, that sort of six to 12 months, months after initial refeeding, do actually, like, the relapse late rate is so much lower. Oh, I could not agree more that um, treatment is about a minimum of six months to a year to two years for people with um, anorexia nervosa and that the... I'm in hospital or any time sort of intensive refeeding is, is only a this short part of that journey. I said I've been working in this area for a long time and I remember, you know, the nineteen eighties where the standard treatment was just to admit someone to hospital and refeed them against their will. And very often people were found that very, very difficult and, and would not would disappear, would not come for any form of treatment afterwards. They would just disappear because the whole process had been so aversive for them. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's especially with adults, you, you, you can refeed somebody and it doesn't have to be awful and traumatic. It can actually be like um, listening to them and working with them. Yeah, I mean, that was, and that's definitely, um, as I say, what came through in the autobiographies was, um, a respectful, collaborative approach where the, the man felt part of the, um, the process, felt respected, and, and um, where the treatment goals were set in collaboration. Huge difference. I would certainly agree with that, and I think that um, at tre- treating adults like adults goes a long way as well. 
I'd be interested to know from from a from a person's own perspective how much of their recovery they attribute to a therapist or how much they attribute to work that they did themselves and their own selves. That, <laughs> which I know is hard to separate, but I would be interested just in in what that perception is. That's another research question, but we do know from um, some study, a big study that was done in Finland, that a lot of people um, do recover from eating disorder on their own. I'm always interested in the perception of that. I speak to a lot of people who are in therapy for an eating disorder, and I also talk to a lot of therapists, and the therapists are under the impression that therapy is 100% needed and it's really effective. And the patients are not always under that impression at all, <laughs> how the, the therapy is actually very effective. And so I think there's a big gap there between what the therapists think about therapy and, and what the actual people who are receiving that therapy think about therapy. You know, not all the time, but I think it's it's bigger than a lot of therapists would like to think is the is the case. For sure. And that was something the men talked about as well. And also, I think we don't, we presume there aren't any adverse effects of our therapy. Um, in drug therapy, um, you always measure the side effects or the adverse effects. You just do because you presume there will be some. Whereas in psychological therapy, we don't rigorously sort of go after adverse experiences or adverse effects. I know, and if only we could, how could we do that? I think, I think we should ask people. I think we should collect, you know, we should ask and collect the data, which we don't often do. Oh, I so agree with you. I really do. What some of the men talked about was, you know, certainly adverse experiences or adverse and, and that can mean you, you then withdraw from treatment and, as you say, sort of think, well, I'll do this by myself. But um, that's not, not necessarily the best sort of outcome. We sort of like to think people would be helped. Well, I never. Who would have thought that both men and women with eating disorders like a collaborative and respectful approach from people and professionals who are competent would have thought? Asking a bit much, aren't we? Seriously though, folks, how how bad is it that, that this seems to come up so regularly, that adults with eating disorders are not getting, well, first of all, competent treatment, but that they're also not getting collaborative and respectful treatment? Like, that's happening so often, it's actually a thing that we're, that is being researched. And we are needing research to look at literature and tell us that collaborative, competent and respectful treatment is actually a recommendation. Yikes. Yeah, so that was interesting for me. I think that when I read the title, looking at the differences in treatment for men with eating disorders, I think I, my treatment to me just immediately, my head goes to nutritional rehabilitation and so I was interested as to why and how that might look different for men. And I guess I, I don't think of um, uh, that question being answered as to do men like their therapists more or do, do women like male therapists as opposed to female therapists. And I feel that it just shows actually how um, a lot of the, the field of therapy and the research that goes into eating disorders focuses on, on therapy as the solution and I think it has to be remembered that a lot of us do recover without therapy and therefore if therapy was crucial and vital and needed in order to recover from an eating disorder then people such as myself wouldn't be able to recover without it.
um, I do think what's vital and needed is food. And so I'm hoping that more research is going to actually look at food <laughs> as eating disorder treatment, because as far as I can tell, it's actually the only vital ingredient that every single person who recovers from a restrictive eating disorder, such as anorexia nervosa, needs. You know, therapy could be supplementary and it can be very helpful. I understand that for some people, therapy is incredibly helpful for them. But that's different from critical or vital or a needed ingredient, I think. Um, if something's critical or vital, it means that the outcome is not going to happen without that one thing. And as far as I can tell, the only one thing that a person needs to nutritionally rehabilitate from an eating disorder is food. Anyway, you may or may not agree, and if you disagree, you are very welcome to tell me. You can tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore. You can email me. My email address is info at tabithafarrar.com. If you've got a different experience, you can come on this podcast and tell me about it. If you've recovered from an eating disorder and want to talk about how you did that and what was helpful for you and what wasn't, let me know. I'll have you on. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.